seek to understand before you're understood. And it's the same with communication, it's the same with negotiation. So even just thinking, where is this person meeting me at? So as we would say, like in marketing, you don't, or in any communication, you don't want to meet people where you're at because they're not there. You're listening to the Build a Vibrant Culture podcast with professional speaker, coach, and consultant, Nicole Greer. Hey, everybody. This is Nicole Greer. Welcome to the Vibrant Culture podcast. I am so excited to be with you here today. I have got a friend from across the pond all the way over in Berlin. I've got Alistair McBride. He is a coach, a facilitator, and a trainer who has started numerous small businesses. He coaches executives and business owners across an array of industries and gives his clients the psychological edge in negotiation. Don't miss that. We're going to highlight negotiation big time today. And he also shares with them techniques to do high-impact conversations. His new program is called Goliath Negotiation Method, and you can find that at almcbride.com. Al's a regular guest lecturer and a facilitator in multiple universities in Ireland on topics such as cognitive behavioral coaching, as well as entrepreneurship and innovation. Oh my goodness, I'm excited. Just that, that bio's got me all thrilled that I've got Al on on the call. And I do get to call you Al. Is that right? Of course. Yeah. Al, Alistair, whatever. Okay. It's all good. It's all good. Okay. I've been called worse things. So great to be here, Nicole. Yeah. I'm delighted to have you. And so right out of the gate, everybody that listens to the Build a Vibrant Culture podcast understands I am collecting definitions of leadership. I'm going to try to figure out what is leadership. So I'd love to hear Al's definition. What do you think about that? Well, I just... Uh... I was thinking about this because people often, uh, I don't know if I'm answering the question directly or not, but they often think in terms of what's leadership often compared to management, you know, and I'm a big fan of Peter Drucker's work where he said, you lead people and you manage things. And the follow on from that, he said, leadership is doing the right things, whereas management is doing things right. And I love that definition because it starts us down a whole line of cascading thoughts off that, which is that leadership is meant to give direction. It's meant to give, it's meant to, leaders are meant to make decisions and create and and make choices, often hard choices. And these are absolutely intricate into the role of the leader. I mean, Daniel Goleman has, of course, the six uh, leadership styles, uh, you know, and we won't go into all six of them, but even just to mention, you know, the, the classic leader as the paternal leader who just, or maternal leader who just issues orders and instructions, do it my way, you know, the very authoritarian leader is sort of the classic model, but that thankfully has gone largely out of fashion. But one of the most underused leadership styles, even still, is the coach leader or the coaching leader where they use those principles of coaching, which I know you're a big fan of as well, Nicole, uh, in their leadership and management style. Now, it might be their dominant style, but it's it's a skill set that they can bring in. And what the, the, what's core at the coaching is that they're trying to grow the team, the staff, the, the people around them. They're trying to improve them. Now, my whole thing, as I often say to people, particularly in negotiation, is, you know, you, you can be all about the benefit for people and 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 good karma and all that good stuff. Like, uh, I, I know your article, uh, as I love, I think I, I try to be myself, but 
you know, you also need to sell it to the psychopath in the room. Uh, <laughs> so it's not just about it, you know, or that, that cold, hard logic stuff. It's not just about coach leadership, this idea of helping people grow as a nice idea. Because people might, cynical people might say, oh, yeah, but what happens when they, they grow and then they just leave you? What's the point then, you know? And right. it's like, oh, no, my no, gosh, no. I've heard that so many times. Exactly. You, they grow so that you can give them more work, <laughs> so that you can give them more responsibility, so that you can get be- and from that, get better results. Uh, I remember, I think it was Tim Ferriss said this years ago when he was learning on how to outsource a lot of his processes to his assistants. And he came up with the phrase, I don't know how complimentary it is, but the more responsibility, the higher the IQ goes. So the more the more responsibility you give people within boundaries, you know, that you want responsibility with accountability. And as you give them more responsibility, which is weighted at their skill set level, you know, that their IQ, their inverted commas, their IQ goes up, their ability to actually think uh, and create better solutions rises and rises quite quickly. Both, as I said, because uh, you're giving them new challenges, which we're adapting, which as humans, particularly in a lot of workplaces, we, we want challenges. We don't want it to be too easy. We don't want to be bored is the worst thing. Uh, but the next point in that is that... Uh, that we're learning that you're always pushing that your your competencies, you know. If you, if you're asked to go twenty percent beyond your competencies, you're in big trouble. You get anxiety and it's stressful. But if you're asked to go within that kind of ninety to one hundred and five percent, you're getting into all those all those sort of uh, flow states that are becoming more and more recognized these days, where you're able to to adapt to that challenge. The challenge and the skill set are in about the right order, and and it really gets the best out of people. That mightn't be what's necessary in 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 that coach leadership style, but it's also t- it is tapping into the idea of developing people, that idea of growing people, but in a highly interactive way, mm-hmm. and in a way so that you like okay. So one of the things when I coach people, more so who are newer to leadership roles, uh, but so that they're usually very prominent, very good at the tasks they do and the job that they have been doing, but now they need to manage people a lot more, a lot better, that kind of thing. Uh, so it's often like in law firms, people who want to break through into partner and they have a lot of good stuff, but they're missing some key elements. The same with some of those big financial firms, that kind of thing. And what so often is the key is that they're that they they lack this, uh, how to put it, this balance of task versus people. And this is a key thing in leader in in, in leaders uh, leadership and management. Indeed, you know, leadership management they're kind of different sides of the same coin to a certain degree. They are different things, but uh, I use I sometimes use the terms interchangeably. So hopefully that doesn't annoy you. But it is this balance between task and people, where often people get very high very quickly because they're excellent at delivering on the task, whatever that. The business operation is they deliver. If it's selling, they're selling. If it's you know putting giant packages together, putting giant, whatever the whatever the thing is, they're good at doing that. And then suddenly they they have to lead other people. And often they're not trained particularly well in leading other people. That first start, oh, so they're just God. expected yeah. to, and, to know by osmosis or something. Pardon yeah. me. And then you end up taking a great tech technician. And yes. you turn them into a leader without preparing them. I just wanted to throw that in there because I, I just want Absolutely. to say, Al is correct. Okay, so you can keep going, but uh, uh, I had to interject that that no, you're, and you're dead right. And please do. 
it, yeah. it's a great highlight, uh, Nicole. It's a great highlight because, again, it's something I see and my colleagues see. I mean, you sure you see it all the time as well. Even if they're given a short course or something, it's like, oh, take, they're now trained as in management leadership. It's like, come on, there's this PhD is done on minute, minuscule parts of each area of this. This is dealing with human beings. It's the most complex stuff in a lot of ways. And as I said, it's this task versus people where mostly in modern Western work environments, people default to leaning more toward task. Now, I find with within more independent business owners and uh, not always uh, with, with creative types, they tend to lean also toward people. They don't want to step on people's toes. They're all about relationships. And particularly people who who are great at building relationships, then obviously in negotiation have this same problem, the task versus people balance that you you don't want to burn bridges. You don't offend people. You don't want to, you know, uh, uh, create or ruin all the good rapport that you've built up over however long or even just reputational. Maybe, you know, you're conscious that you may or may not see this individual again. Uh, whether it's a, a colleague or a client, but you, you know you don't want them to, to speak ill of you. You know, so it's it's a natural human thing that we kind of liked. Now, it's those getting the job done versus wanting to be liked. Again, the thing in most modern workplaces is people are like I get the job done. You know, the amount of times you hear these narratives from people when you talk to them, not very long, where that I'm the one who gets the ball over the line, and these sort of right, these sort of terms where you know, often sporting analogies, not not always, but uh, you know, they they drive home this thing that no matter what, I get it done. And why? Because that's what's got them there that they deliver. And that's, that's fantastic. You know, that's often, as you said, they're, 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 they're technicians. They're, they're good at delivering that key thing, but how do they then move to the next stage? How do they then involve their team? Because one of the other things that I'm sure you see a lot, particularly in middle or or executives, when they're new to these bigger roles, they continue to struggle because they're like, oh, I'm working so late and I, I, my team aren't doing this and aren't doing that. And it's because they're often not able to delegate accurately or appropriately. Because, oh, if I got to do it, I might as well make sure it's done right, this kind of thing. That means you haven't trained your team or you haven't instructed your team or, or helped manage your team in doing some of those processes. This is why better leaders, you know, the people who make that CEO or, you know, CFO or whatever it is in their relevant area, almost always are much better at handing work to other people on their team, their direct reports or or their colleagues, and focusing on what they do absolutely best. Whereas people who aren't, they're still in that earlier mode of getting, I get the ball over the line. It's like, yeah, but you're stepping on lots of toes. You're alienating your team. They feel underused and bored half the time. And like, oh, I I need a challenge here. This person wants to do everything. They're not able to give work. They're not able to give instruction. So anyway, I I keep banging on here. Sorry about that, Nicole. You got me excited with that question. I know. I just asked one question. I know. I was off. I was off. I'm energetic about that one because you're right. It is something that you see so often. And it is that case of what got you here won't get you there. Oh, which is Marshall Goldsmith, everybody. So write that down. What got you here won't get you there. It's a book by Marshall Goldsmith and bonus material on the Build a Vibrant Culture podcast. 
not only do you need to uh, Al's website, which we will definitely put in the show notes, but you need to go over to marshallgoldsmith.com. He's got an entire library full of stuff that's just sitting there and it's free. I mean, it's a, lot of it's a treasure trove. Oh my gosh. So please go over there. And then I just want to highlight a couple of other things that Al mentioned because uh, like his passion is so beautiful, first of all, uh, but he mentioned uh, Peter Drucker. So just a little FYI for you, for those of you who are like Peter, who? Okay. Peter Drucker was like the godfather. Like he birthed uh, the idea of leadership and management into kind of the world in the fifties and the sixties. He, um, he has passed. There's this place out in California called the Drucker Institute. Everybody write that down. Drucker Institute. You got to get yourself there. Okay. Go there. Um, And then here's the other thing that you may not know about Al and Nicole is we're both trying to write a book right now. And here's my inspiration for you, Al. I know you're you're in the process. I'm in the process. I've extended my process. But Peter Drucker wrote over 60 books and he wrote most mm. of them after he turned 50. So that's that's why I'm hanging my hat on. That, that's I'm, a very interesting point. I mean, the, the Effective Executive is, off, is still one of the most recommended books by CEOs. Uh, for executives. So it's basically how to do that job. And this is the point. It was written in the 60s, but the principles are evergreen. This is the point. All the, the tools may change, you know, that we're using laptops and Zoom and all the rest of it, but the principles remain the same. And and that that speaks to the value of it, that it's still so, so hugely recommended. So as you say, Peter Drucker, 60 books, but Start with the the effective executive, yeah. Okay, I love that. And then also don't miss what he mentioned. He said you need to go check out Goldman's work, right? So that he he downloaded to you. And then the other thing that I got out of what you said, which I think I want to slow us down and just say, a great leader balances the need to take care of the people with the need to get the stuff done, to get the task done. So, you know, you, you might have two columns you know, on your daily planner where you're like, where am I talking to the people and where am I making sure the stuff, the strategy is getting done? So that you you really downloaded a whole lot. So you might want to rewind, start over and listen again, but (laughs) it was was really good. It was really good. Okay. All right. So here, here's what I want to do though, is I, you've got this expertise in negotiation and you're a master of communication and getting others to do that masterfully. And I'm going to tell you, when I go places, I say, what's going on? And like, we need to communicate. I mean, that's the Send them to me, Nicole. <laughs> that's the crux <laughs> of everything. Okay. So first of all, what makes a leader effective in communication? Like let's, let's foundationally set it up. So why is communication like the skill a leader needs to have? What do you think? Well, there's a few attributes. I mean, one of the things I often say to people is that there's a Harvard Business Review study from a few years ago. And essentially, it said that they, they interviewed hundreds of CEOs in all sorts of different industries. And what came across, came out of it was quite profound. It said that the ability to communicate was the number Number one attribute in making someone promotable, right? And that was rated higher than ambition, education, or even hard work. And when you start to think about why is that? Because like, come on, why is that? It's because often we all have qualifications for a certain position, 
right? And we're all expected to work pretty hard. So a lot of those things these days are kind of givens, right? But what makes the difference with someone is whether they can communicate their ideas, whether they can communicate the value that they've already brought, whether they can tell a, a compelling story, right? All of these different aspects or even just sometimes, you know, this in, in per conversation, per interaction, this might only make a tiny difference. Right? Some days it makes a huge difference because you really get through to someone who otherwise you might not have gotten through to. But most of the time it might be a very small thing. But all those little gains, they compound. They're like compound interest in a bank account. That For the first while, it doesn't make that much of a difference. But you start looking at it, you know, months, years when you compare careers. And the person who's the better communicator, it just goes higher, further and faster over time, over 10, 20, 30 years, over a whole career. They have, you know, more choice in uh, the roles that they take, in the projects that they work on, and who works on their team by able to convince, persuade and influence people to join their team that they want to have there, they want the... Uh, and get the most out of those people. So it's 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 a lot of those those skill sets. But I mean, I'm talking about leadership now and that more general, more, maybe more modern term of a leader where everyone is expected, even from the most junior person, to at least lead themselves. You have to lead yourself before you can lead others. So before even they have a title, which is all about, now oh, I'm the leader, you know, uh, that you're expected to lead yourself. Because let's be honest, in modern workplaces, uh, even if you're a very small startup, you know, there's only four of you or something, you're influencing, you're influencing across, you're influencing up, you're influencing down, you're influencing in other, if it's a big organization, in other departments where you have no actual power. You're having to influence to get things from them, or maybe you need that report faster than they're happy to give it to you, or all these sort of little things. And the better that you can communicate, the better that you can influence, persuade, and as you said, and even show and demonstrate the value that you bring in the first instance. So all of those aspects all come together. And they're the similar type of aspects, as I said, in more formal negotiation. It's all the same sort of skill sets, same sort of principles. And sorry, a very long-winded answer to your question here, Nicole. But- yeah, I, I think it's fantastic because, you know, this is this is what, uh, you know, and I like to do this. I like to kind of go back through because I, I think people are on their treadmill, Al, or they're driving their car. And it's like, he said, he said something and I want to make sure I don't miss it. But the question was, you know, why is communication the real deal? And you said, because you can't get your ideas communicated, you can't demonstrate value, you can't share a proper story. And we all know, I mean, we could talk for you and I could talk for story about stories for probably four hours or something, but the power of a story, it's like the innate human tool to convey a, a message is through a story, right? Because I'll remember Absolutely. a story before I'll remember some kind of formula or something. And then you said, you know, being able to have a proper conversation. And I just wrote, when I wrote down that word, I wrote down rapport. Mm, absolutely. And you hit the nail on the head with rapport. Because the next step with communication, first of all, is that you're able to actually enunciate your ideas and all that. But you really start with the other in mind. You know, this, you know, like Stephen Covey said, you know, start, start with the end in mind. But, you know, before that, he said, this was a key parallel here is, Seek to understand before you're understood. And it's the same with communication. It's the same with negotiation. So even just thinking, where is this person meeting me at? So as we would say, like in marketing, you don't, or in any communication, you don't want to meet people where you're at. 
because they're not there. You have to meet them where <laughs> they're at. And it's just even realizing that because a lot of people go, oh, yeah, we're pretty much in the same place. No, you're not. I can just tell you now, if you think you're in the same place, you're not. <laughs> so even just having that question is, okay, I know kind of where I'm at, but where is this person probably coming from? Now it's a hypothesis. We don't want to fall into an assumption trap, you know, because assumptions, false certainty, dangerous. But we're having mm. a hypothesis. We're, we're testing a theory here. But it's the point, you see what I mean? It's the perspective. It's the mindset that you're coming to this at that, hmm, maybe, you know, they're having a hard time and they're actually overworked and they're really stressed when I call them. And that's why they're not that happy to hear from me. So maybe be prepared when I phone them that they might be a bit stressed rather than, hey, Nicole, great to hear from you. You know, so <laughs> so it's just even like, I know I'm getting super basic here, but it's just having that peace of mind, that mindset that, to, to meet them where they are, not where you are. And have that idea where, which great leaders tend to, that they're trying to get into the mindsets of, uh, in negotiation, we would say the other side or the counterpart, but it might be into the, in, into the, into the headspace of your team member. Maybe they were performing very well and now suddenly the performance has dropped, right? So it's, it's like, what may have happened? Now, you don't want to go in with all sorts of assumptions. But again, it's just that awareness that something has changed. Maybe you should ask how they're doing. Lean toward the human rather than, why is this task not complete? You know, it's like they have been performing. They can do the job. That's not the problem. So something else is the problem, you know. So it's reaching to that rapport, reaching to that, treating people as other human beings. You know, this is absolutely key in any business because everything where you're not treating people as human beings is the thing that's faster to be replaced by AI, right? It's all the human stuff that's much, that's going to be the last thing replaced by AI, all right? So it's I couldn't agree with you more. It's establishing that rapport, but even just starting with those questions in your head that set up the mindset to allow more natural rapport to actually grow. Why? Because you're interested in the other side. You're interested in what they're thinking. You're interested in how they're doing, how they're feeling whatever that might be. But it's that attitude is what I'm talking about. And this is one of the things where people often go, oh yeah, what can I say in this situation? What can I say in that? And yeah, there are certain, you know, things that one could say, but it's more the attitude. That's how you sound authentic. That's how you sound like you actually care rather than using the line, uh, you know, whatever the line might be <laughs> in some sort of management textbook or something. Because people can tell if you care or not. They can even tell if, if you're genuinely interested or not. So that's what we're trying to tap into. And it's just that, that human edge that starts to establish that crucial thing, which is that rapport. And again, talking to the, the cold, hard person, you know, the psychopath in the room. Okay, I wrote that what? down twice. I want to talk about okay, the psychopath in the room, but hold well, on. <laughs> well, it's just, I mean, it's just a thought piece for me, just to sort of say that, you know, a lot of people might be on board with you, but it's, it's, it's the people who are on the fence and you need to be able to sell it to the people who are all on board with the good karma stuff that you and I, you know, are all about. But people who are like the cold, hard facts and maybe Maybe they're not psychopaths, but they're they're in the it's in the same thing, which is that when you have rapport with someone, when it, and it you know you you can it takes a, a while to build trust. Trust is not built in a day, but rapport can be built really quickly. You know, some people you just meet and you go, oh, I really like that person, or oh, I really got a feeling you could work with that person. You know, that kind of thing. Never mind interpret like you know 
anything more than that. But rapport can be built very quickly. But that's the basis for building trust, which is built over time. But it also means when you have, and this has been shown by a lot of negotiation research, as an example, and there's no reason to think it's any different in, in smaller scale social or work relationships, that deals that are done in negotiation, which are rated as high trust, have over 35% more value created than deals with low trust. Now, again, that's not rocket science. <laughs> you know why that might be. It's also deals last longer when there's higher trust. Why? Because you have the benefit of the doubt. If one side or the other inevitably drops the ball, the other side don't go, oh, I knew they'd mess. I knew they'd drop the ball. I knew they were only messing around. They don't care about us. Instead of that kind of going to the negative, why? Because there's no trust built. It's natural to go to the negative. We're, we're humans, unfortunately. What is it? You know, We need to hear like eight positive things to every negative thing or whatever to balance them out because we're primed for the negative. Because it was survival. You know, it, it's it's you know, it's good to avoid danger more than reaching for the reward. Otherwise, that's how our ancestors didn't get wiped out. Anyway, so you have the benefit of the doubt when you're building that rapport. And that's absolutely crucial. So that when someone goes, mm, I don't know, I'm suspicious. Instead, they go, oh, that's not likely, Cole. Eh, I'm sure it's just something, you know, they ascribe it to circumstances, not character. Because humans, you know, in having difficult conversations and tricky interactions and particularly where there's low trust and all these sort of things, tend to suddenly see, we see patterns. We're pattern recognition machines, but it's from the, but again, it's from what's in the back there, how we filter it through our beliefs and whatnot. And when there's low trust, when there's low or no or low rapport, we go, oh, we go to bad places. We go, oh, that's them. They're not trustworthy. They're not reliable. They're not this, they're not that. So again, all of these things come right back to the circle. It's all about communication, starting that ball rolling, a better rapport, better interactions. Also where you're learning more. Because when people are, are more comfortable with you, you're having that rapport, they're giving you more information. I mean, that's crucial for negotiation, but even just in inter-team conversations, you go, oh, I didn't know you covered that before. Oh, yeah, yeah, I knew that. And then suddenly you're like, oh, wait, could you actually give me some, because you've 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 dealt with this before. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah. So people are as much more freer exchange of information, ideas, so greater value creation is a lot easier, but also problem solving is a lot easier because you're not reinventing the wheel the whole time because people are communicating freely. Yeah. Sorry, I'll, I'll pause there. I'm on, I was going a bit... Too energetic there, Nicole. Sorry about that. I'm all about being vibrant and energetic and energized. So you're all about the go. vibrance. So I, I, I am. I am. I mean, I have, what bring would the, the vibrance what, what would the world be like if everybody loved communication as much as Elle McBride? It would be an amazing planet, <laughs> right? So I'm all about it. Okay. So I just, again, I just want to say that, you know, we're talking about rapport. It's kind of like the linchpin to getting the negotiation going, a couple of little bits of genius flowed out of you. Let me repeat them back to everybody. Um, one was, you know, number one, you have to have the right attitude to approaching the, the situation that you're in. And then you can figure out what key words, key sentences, questions, lines you would use um, that I, I bet Al has in his Goliath method, right? Like, here's a great thing to yeah. say. Th right? There's lots, another great but, thing to do. Yeah, exactly. It's more, as you say, it's about tapping into genuinely what what you're trying to do. And then you don't have to remember what was I meant to say or what was the line I was meant to use. No, 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 no. Just right. tap you into... You can't script a negotiation, can you? 
no, yeah, it's totally, it's like a an improvised process where the other side, it's like a sport game where, you know, you can only control what you do or your team to a certain extent. You can't even control your team. Like they're going to do things that you don't quite expect. But going back to just being you, yeah, if the other person are doing a different thing. You're creating this thing together, you know. That's why it's scary. That's why it's nervous. But why it also can be quite brilliant. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, um, and what I, what I kind of did is I, I was started to make a little diagram based on what you were saying. So like there's rapport, we find common ground, we experience the other person and then we have trust. So I'll say that again, we, um, we start to build rapport with our positive attitude. We find common ground. We experience the other person. We don't fall into the assumption trap and then we begin to, to do the process. So, so talk a little bit about your Goliath method and, and maybe a little bit about, you know, some, some leaders not, might be like, I guess I do negotiate, but like, if we're specific, what are the, what are the three things leaders negotiate all the time? Or maybe the six things, what are they? What, what are we negotiating all the time in business? Well, this go, I suppose that goes back to a few elements that we started with, which were, about this idea of task versus people. I mean, it is kind of a theme that runs through it. But what I'm talking about now is that if you have, okay, if you're a leader, you can just say, we're doing this, like um, the visionary leader. And that, and you don't particularly care if people are on board or not, because they should be on board, this kind of thing. Right. But in this work environment, this is not in the 1960s where people were in jobs for life. We all know people change jobs and much more frequently than ever before. But there's also an expectation that I am not stuck here. You know, even in a bad economy, I can be gone. So I need all these different needs met. So I need to feel regarded. I need to feel respected. So that if you are making a decision, one of the what great leaders tend to do is they create a win-win, like a feeling that, I, like I t- let me tell you a quick story about a, a, an old boss oh, of mine. I, I, I was an art dealer. I was an art dealer back in the day when because I, uh, I did psychology and art history. And I went initially the art route and then back into the psychology route. But anyway, uh, I was an art dealer in a gallery. And I remember my boss, was. I learned so much from him. He was, he was amazing because uh, I would have loads of innovative ideas. You know, like, what, we could do this. Or how about we could do that? And I'd sort of work out the idea and then I'd bring him the idea and I love this because half the time, more than half the time, he'd say no. And a lot of managers go, no, we're not doing that. No, we can't do that. And then you like, oh, okay, why, why am I contributing? Now, I'm using like a really narrow example, but the point is contributions are trying to be made, but they're largely dismissed or there's not an acknowledgement. There's not what, what uh, they call in psychology emotional payments. I mean, an emotional payment on its base is, you know, if you're being served in a restaurant, you just meet the eyes of the server. And not, you know, that's just a human acknowledgement, that level up to signs of appreciation. Oh, thanks very much. Or, oh, that was good work. Or, oh, yeah, I really like how you did this. That was great. You know, these are emotional payments where people go, oh, thanks. Very. They feel in some level acknowledged at base, uh, appreciated or even admired at really high up. Right. So you, you want to be hitting something in there so that, again, it's using your team to their strengths. But even when you're not, that they feel appreciated like this boss, as I said, I used to bring him these things, but they'd always, he would always, always tell me why. He's like, oh, I really like this part. We can't because of this thing that you're not aware of or this decision that we've had to make for bigger policy reasons or whatever. I go, ah, okay, great. Now I can kind of see. So I'm not thrilled that it wasn't used, but I feel, I feel 
treated like an adult. I feel appreciated. I feel like I, I, I've learned that I've almost grown. And but then, but it was in a really positive way. So it was like an incredibly positive no, you know, the most positive no you could ever hear. And so that's what I'm talking about by, by, by a leader using the team. So even when they're disagreeing, that they're still feeling. I mean, you, you're you, they're still feeling appreciated, and and that their contributions are not just welcome but valued. And this, I mean, you, you talk about culture. This is one of the key things in culture where they make huge strides. I mean, I'm sure you know this, Nicole, but a lot of, a lot of the listeners might, but it, it is exactly that, that in high-performing teams, that they have a huge amount of what's called task conflict. Oh, how does that, oh, I don't think that'll work, and blah, blah, blah. And they're talking about the nitty-gritty of what, you know, strategy to use or what system to buy or whatever the issue it is they're dealing with. But they have extremely low relationship conflict. Why? Because those aspects of rapport and respect are there, that the ideas are acknowledged. And when arguments are made against one person's perspective or another, it doesn't get personal. It stays on that object. And again, that's crucial for negotiation. Those key negotiations. So now, I mean, that's at CEO level, at executive level, then you're fighting for resources all the time. I've never heard anyone say, oh, I I have plenty of budget and too many people. (laughs) <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard that, right? <laughs> it's they always have like, oh, you know, they're always tied on time or they're tied on budget or they're, t- they're tied on something or everything, right? So it's 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 making that story, understanding. So if you're talking to the board that you need X amount of resources or your boss you need X amount of resources, it's creating that story, knowing what from their perspective what they need to hear, and and ha- to help facilitate what you need. Right. And how does my request help you win? You know, so, okay, I'm asking you for this extra person or for this extra two weeks on this project or whatever it is. But how does that serve you? You know, and it's immediately thinking in terms of how does this person win from my request? And that's total negotiation, right? But a lot of people in those situations go, oh, I don't really negotiate. <laughs> it's like, you're negotiating all the time. If you're discussing with your spouse, like uh, what to watch on Netflix, you're probably negotiating, right? So, um, yeah, well, you just laid down a very good question. I didn't want people to gloss over it. So a big part, I think, of negotiation is asking the right questions and asking mm-hmm. questions that create a climate of discovery. Okay. So I just want to say that, that, that that's important, but you said perspective is so important. Now, this is, this is the really powerful question you want to ask before, when you're sitting quietly, before you get into the negotiation, before you're the executive and you walk in and you lay down what it is you want everybody to do, or you're the CEO and you're giving your direction. You want to, you want to answer this question that Al put out, how does this person win from my request? See, that little bit of genius just popped out of him. And I'm going to tell you, that is a great question. You should write it on a piece of paper and hang it up in your office. (laughs) Uh, Because when you consider the other person's perspective instead of just your own, um, that's, that's going to really illuminate or light up, make your brain vibrant about what needs to go down in the, inside this. And you also said it has to be a win-win. People have to feel regarded. They have to feel respected and not dismissed in the process. 
So lots of genius right there. So I love all that. Okay. So, so talk then about how the Goliath method works. Is there like steps, process, structure? Absolutely. Okay. The Goliath negotiation method, I mean, it's called Goliath because that's often what I, I, even when I was brought into people who were uh, working for huge companies, there's always a bigger fish. And that was usually part of the issue that they were in the David role in the the classic Goliath, David Goliath saga. I mean, the David Goliath thing, just to say, you know, it's not literal. I don't mean that you should attack your 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 right. position you don't need a slingshot violence. okay <laughs> but it is it is you know it's the it's the age-old metaphor for uh you know for the underdog right it's the underdog story and, and that's kind of what it's about and the whole point is that it's about resourcefulness not resources you know resourcefulness is a is a is a it's a characteristic Whereas resources are more of a physical thing with actual limitations. And that that's kind of the point was David essentially brought a gun to a knife fight and didn't play by the giant's rule. Like, why would you play by the opposition's strength? Like, that was just, that would be daft. So, and so there was that level of creative thinking and breaking the mold of what, should be done. And it, like this was happened, what, 3,000 years ago or something? We're still, it's still, everybody knows it across cultures. It's amazing because it's, it's a biblical story. But but the Goliath negotiation method works on that. So we start, uh, you know, it's five major zones, but we work through by getting you psychologically more prepared. So a lot of people who do negotiate uh, have, you know, the general negotiation stuff, which is great. And I, I integrate that as well. But as I say, Usually, when I work in corporates, uh, I, I, my my courses are called the, the psychological edge of negotiation, and so it's essentially some a lot of the similar points. And what that basis is is getting yourself mentally and emotionally prepared for the negotiation. A lot of people forget because a lot of this is a lot of the, in the process is uh, what I what I call performing under pressure or resilience training, resilience skills, so that you're able to manage your emotions because. It's a very emotionally fraught thing. You're you're trying to work at how far you can push and how to react when you get pushed and and all these little surprises that are popping up. So it can be quite tricky experience. So there's a lot about centering yourself, a lot about being able to to master your emotions because the more that you can master your emotional states, the less influence they have on you, and the more that you can influence their thinking and their behavior all in an ethical and very constructive way, of course, but it's also being able to counter a lot of maybe less ethical maneuvers that are made against you, more emotionally manipulative maneuvers. And so there is a lot on that about how to actually handle yourself and handle those tricky uh, emotional situations and difficult conversations, you might say. So again, a lot of these principles are also very, very helpful and they double up for managing people. And again, that's managing whether it's up, down, across, managing with no authority, you know, and, and all the rest of it. But after we start to get the, 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 my client sort of more emotionally prepared and prepared by, uh, again, going into the, the what's the mindset of other and I have lots of steps for people to do that, to get into that hypothesis of really working out what's the probable needs of this person, what's the probable fears that they have, and then how might we actually maneuver them to where I want to bring them, where we're making a, a mutually beneficial, highly valuable deal or, or agreement of some sort. And 
Next, we add the creative element. Now, all of these are you kind of do on your own, and then you do them more dynamically with the other side. But it's huge because there's so much potential value to be added to a deal than a simple transaction. And people forget about this, you know, even whether it's, you know, doing a job interview, you know, where you're negotiating terms. There's so many different factors that can come into play between, you know, okay, there's the salary, but then there's the wage. Sorry, salary, then there's the pension contributions, potentially. There's stock options. There's days leave. There's working in the place, working remotely. Then there's all sorts of other benefits like allowances for training your team. There's allowances for, you know, travel or whatever it is you want, you think you need. There's all sorts of different ways for maneuvering that and creating value. And I work people through a process, which is all about what can I give that's of high perceived value for the other side, but of low cost to me. Now, cost in terms of, you know, time, money, effort, whatever way you you want to ascribe that cost. And equally, what can they give me that's of high value to me, but of low cost to them? And when you start bringing in those elements, you're adding all these unique differentiators to the deal that you're creating. That if you if this is a commercial kind of larger deal between companies or whatever, you've just created differentiation that your competitors can't easily match. Now, maybe some of them they can, but a lot of them are unique to you. You know, so that you've kind of insulated the deal from other people's interference Uh, or indeed, if it's more interpersonal stuff within a company that you've actually just created more value where the other people, it's more unique and it's more appreciated. Uh, And from there, as I said, then we actually go into how to deal with it in the real, the real dynamic uh, negotiation and the stress therein and how to handle that live with feedback loops and all that sort of stuff. And then how to close the deal, how to how to tie things up. And part of that then is the review process. What, what went well, what didn't. If things start getting, if there's friction down the line, as often is, how to, how to deal with that. And the last thing I'd say is also having that implementer mindset versus dealmaker mindset. Dealmaker mindset's important, that you want to close the deal, you want to get it over the line. Very important. But... One of the big problems is people do that at the expense of how is this going to work in reality, <laughs> right? <laughs> because often with big with big companies doing big deals, the people doing the deal aren't the ones having to deal with the consequences. And the amount of times I've gone into places where people are renegotiating a big mess because it was all about the they had the wrong KPIs. There was nothing to do with how the thing was actually going to work in person. But again, you can bring that down to the team level. Is this actually doable? You know, what we've what we're trying to work out in this little agreement that we have between us. So I'll pause there, but that that just gives you a quick overview of some of the process that I bring people through, uh, and some of the, hopefully some of the benefits as well. Yeah. So I, I want to repeat it back, and I, but I want to give you full permission to correct and mm. clarify as we go along. So um, you know, the first thing that you need to do in a negotiation uh, is get yourself psychologically prepped. Uh, Mm. mentally and emotionally, uh, work on your resilience skills, learn to manage your emotions, get centered, 
and learn how to um, really, I think, basically understand that people can be ugly in negotiations. So get your head in the game that that could come your way. And then what are you going to do when things get ugly? Counter kind of the uh, manipulation yeah, I, or things. Just to interject for really one second part. there, just to, just to dive in one second to add, again, it comes back to that task versus people, because a lot of people, particularly, they you know, they want to be social. They want to be liked. It's a natural thing, right? But they try and be friends in the negotiation. That can come afterwards. Don't like, you know, that you have to be prepared to stand up for yourself first or if you're on behalf of others for for the cause, for the what's the purpose, the why you have here. And that's what you go in with, not with your ego going, oh, what if they like me, you know? Sorry, I just wanted to add there. So please continue. No, no, I love that. I love that. And then the second part was to figure out what is of high perceived value to them, but low cost to me, meaning time, money, resources, and then the flip side. Mm -hmm. Right. Then number three, look at the feedback loops. I just like a little like. Talk about feedback loops for just a moment. Um, that's definitely that's, communication uh, talk. So talk a little well, bit about that. Well, I don't know that I, well it isn't, that. it isn't. I mean, it, it's, you know, the, the faster you can get information out and or get something out to have information come back to you that you can tweak and adjust your course, you know, the, the faster you'll get where you're going. I mean, you know, or the faster you'll learn. I mean, that's what learning is. You know, that's why Google... Is amazing because they have millions of feedback loop as to was this link successful? Yes, people stayed on the site longer. No, this one's not. And so it's continually adjusting. And that's why it has the fast feedback loop. You know, that's that's why it's continually so useful. But interpersonally, yeah, when you're talking between people, yeah, you're you you say something as a little hypothesis and you see, oh yeah, no, that's totally the case. Oh no, that's not totally the case at all. Okay, change that. That wasn't accurate at all. And so you're adapting all the time. But it's the again, it's that I'm loath to say mindset, but I suppose it is a mindset. It's that attitude that where you come to it, noticing the back and forth. This is why, like a lot of like I, I as you, as you mentioned, I, I lecture in in master's course and coaching, and this is the coaching skills. So as as one of my students said, you know, you're essentially training negotiators coaching skills because the, that I mean, not not solely. There's a lot of the innovation stuff, a lot of other stuff, but that's a core of it. Absolutely, right. and that's that feedback loop that you're you're listening, not to not to sound smart when you when you reply, but you're listening to understand. And it's easier said than done because people are always waiting to like oh, I want to say that, you know. <laughs> and, and that's what I do on this podcast. I, so that's what I'm going to highlight. So I stop and I say, "This is what I heard you say. Please clarify if I don't get uh, it absolutely. right." Absolutely, that, that was a good example go. right yeah. there. Yeah. So so I just want to make sure you guys understand what a feedback loop is. And it is coaching and it is, you know, slowing things down. So everybody is resonating with what's being said. It's not just, you know, flowing over the top of them. You know, like, I, you know, I kind of liken it to like, you know, I, I can uh, go to the beach and I can ride the wave. But, you know, where I'm really you know, alert, alive is like when I'm fighting the wave to get out there, you know, and then I let the wave take me. That's the fun part when I just let the wave take me. But feedback loop I have down is number three, and that is a great definition. And then you said number four was close the deal, right? So negotiation Mm -hmm. does have a a sensibility of, you know, sales around it. Um, But that is basically bringing, bringing things to an agreement, 
Mm-hmm. Would you agree with that definition? Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, right. okay. And then number five, which I think is so, oh my gosh, so important. And maybe you can tell me because I can't think of what it's called right now, Al. But it, where you review what just happened. A lot of people are like, "We got this done. We're on to the next thing." And you're saying, "Well, yeah, stop. Let's some would call it a, a, a debrief, yeah, uh, or a post mortem." I actually have people do a pre mortem and a post mortem. The pre-mortem is so that you're sketching out from a different perspective of what you presume everything's gone wrong and you go, why? And it gives your brain license to think very bad things. But that unearths a lot of possibilities where you go, oh, I never thought of that. Now, most of them you'll know and most of them you kind of can deal with. But there's often a few that are like, oh, we didn't think of that. Or, you know, so I have a whole process you can work people through. But after the meeting, then you do the post-mortem. Uh, where you go, well, how do, or a debrief, it could also be called, where you go, what went well? You could do the traffic light system. What do you what are you going to do more of? What was about right and what should you do less of? <laughs> you know, just as a simple way of, of gauging your own, to try and get in that, again, feedback loop of reflection. One of the things that executives have the least time for and leave out the most is reflection. What is a reflection? But it's a feedback loop, Right. And this is also a reason why people often don't learn from their mistakes because they don't actually take a moment to reflect on, well, okay, what aspect of this thing was it that didn't, ah, it was this aspect. Okay, I got it. And then you're less likely to make the mistake again. But people, oh, I don't have time for that. I'm too busy rushing everywhere, as modern life is, you know. So, yeah, reflection is a debrief and doing a little bit of postmortems can, can help a lot. Yeah. And I wanted to throw out, I want to clarify and make sure you got it. He said the stoplight. So there's what are we going to start doing, stop doing and continue doing. So that that's what he's got right there. So I didn't want you to miss that. That was another little, and I love anything. I'm all about strategy systems and smarts. Any little thing you can teach me that I can kind of get in there in an easy way, the stoplight. I love that. Okay. Uh, and then the last thing you said, which, oh, and I think you may be just, coming off of this with your with your own ingenious brain uh but i i heard you say um you need to be the deal maker but you also have to think like an implementer which is making me think of the book uh traction um ah yeah i have read traction a few years when it came out and i I had to put the two together but yeah yeah Uh, i suppose it is yeah no i mean i it wasn't my term it was yeah it, it it's known in negotiation stuff so yeah Okay. Yeah. So be the implementer. And, uh, and you, and you said this really smart thing because you're probably in the negotiation because your level in the organization, your authority, you're the owner, whatever. Um, but then you have to have people carry out everything you're putting in this deal. And so you have to think about, you have to be the COO, right? How will we operate this deal? There's a simple huge. test, which is bring in the consult with the people who are actually going to be doing this on the weekly basis or whatever it is, you know, Uh, you know, again, it's not rocket science and you can't avoid every problem, but you would be amazed the amount of people. This is particularly in IT. I see this in IT all the time. The sales guys go and deliver this amazing presentation and they promise this and promise that and promise the other. And then the, the most used tactic against sellers is just one more thing. As in we're about to sign just one more thing. It's the most successfully used tactic against sellers. And so they go, oh, can you just throw this thing in or, you know, give us a discount on that part? And they go, oh, yeah, yeah, to do it. But they don't know what they've just given away. 
And so often they've literally slashed the profit margin by 20% or even 50%, you know, because they've added like 200 or 3,000 developer hours with one little, because they don't know, because they're not the ones who actually have to deliver, you know. Right. See it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that just made me think about it. Um, When is it appropriate to bring like a a person with expertise from IT or HR or manufacturing or whatever, you know, from the front lines of manufacturing into the process? Do you ever, uh, you know, bring a witness to the process? You know, is that that a thing? It it depends is a simple answer. But my, my, uh, as a general rule, I would say regularly and often. Okay. I talk to them once, you know, <laughs> talk to them when you're hypothesizing your plan of action, talk to them after the first meeting. To, and then if they're needed, if you think there actually there would be a benefit of bringing them into the process where they can actually ask and contribute and do it live at the meeting, then certainly bring them in. Uh, I mean, if it's important, that probably should be a priority of theirs. And particularly if it affects them down the line, uh, that they won't hate you for wanting to wanting to to get their input you know right right um so but again it's it's situation dependent absolutely all right well here's what we've covered today everybody we've talked about from the get-go uh the difference between leadership and management and what my big takeaway is you know leaders got to manage the task and the people um and then we got into the, the the value of communication and then he just laid down his goliath method for us so i am just eternally grateful for all of this great information uh if there was one special listener that wanted like one more little nugget from Al McBride, like, you know, what would the nugget you would lay down? Something that they could really put to work this week in their work and in their negotiations. What would you leave us with? Uh, There's a few different ones. It's hard to, hard to think of one, but I suppose if I have to give one, it's being absolutely crystal clear in your purpose. Uh, and, and and again, it's uh, these are fundamentals, Nicole. You know, these are what everyone. Oh, yeah, I know that. I know why I'm here. Do you like? <laughs> you know, so and this is for any interaction. This is like, what is my purpose in doing this job? And and go five whys deep, at least. So, oh, I'm to. Uh, why are you doing this job to get money? It's like, yeah. Why are you doing this job? It's like, oh, well, because it's in this field and I vaguely want to go, why, 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 why? And keep asking why until you feel like you really can't go much further. It's absolutely crucial when you're talking to other people is knowing what you want first. Because when you actually have that clarity, then you have a much better clarity of how your request or your instruction, depending on your level, actually does fit when you then start thinking into what the other side might be thinking. But so many people don't even do it clearly for themselves first. Now, I get it. There's still a huge amount of adaptability with, well, I don't exactly know what I want. But having kind of a feeling for why you want it, that can give you a huge amount of adaptability and freedom and flexibility and strength. And it saves you a whole lot of time, too. You know, so that would probably be. I know that might be a bit esoteric. It might be a bit airy-fairy to some, but no. when you're crystal clear in your purpose, it's much easier to deliver on that purpose, you know, in a very dynamic way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and another way to say it is just be clear on the mission ahead. What are we exactly trying to get done, yeah. right? And when you mentioned yeah. the five whys, that's not, that's, that's not woo-woo or just, you know, nefarious or whatever, but 
the five whys is an actual project management. You can find it in the PIMBOK, mm-hmm. right? You know, the professional uh, book of, of um, project management, book of knowledge, right, is the PIMBOK. So uh, you can find it in there. That is an actual exercise. So everybody go look that up, Google it. You'll find a thousand things on the five whys. Well, Al McBride, I am so excited that you came on the Build a Vibrant Culture podcast. And as soon as the book gets done, I want to be the one that interviews you about the book and uh, we'll dive excited, a little deeper. Yeah. Do, you, do you pinky promise we'll do that? We'll talk about it. Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Nicole. It's been great on. Uh, great this evening. I've rabbited on way too much. Sorry. I, no, <laughs> I, I, I was trying to bring the vibrance. You know, I tried to bring the energy. So, I mean, I usually am fairly energetic, but I, I wanted to give, give give as much of that vibrancy as, as you could handle. So, no, and I, I loved it. I loved every I, minute of it. But tell I everybody where they you. can find you. Where can everybody find you? And then we'll S- sign off. Simple thing is uh, almcbride.com. Uh, I have my podcast uh, is linked there. You can find the podcast Dealing with Goliath uh, on all good places that you find your podcast. And indeed, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. We're just look for me, Al McBride or Alistair McBride, A-L-I-S-T-A-I-R. That's why I reduce it to Al because people misspell Alistair so much. Um, and just, yeah, reach out, say hello and uh, engage, communicate. Absolutely. And if you can't find them, call me. I'll get you hooked up. Thanks exactly. for being on the Build a Vibrant Culture podcast. We'll talk to you next time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Nicole. Ready to build your vibrant culture? Bring Nicole Greer to speak to your leadership team, conference, or organization to help them with her strategies, systems, and smarts to increase clarity, accountability, energy, and results. Your organization will get lit from within. Email Nicole at NicoleGreer.com. And be sure to check out Nicole's TEDx talk at NicoleGreer.com.